0: Warning, this is an in-depth scholarly excavation of what we call the sinful woman or what others have known as the adulterous woman where Jesus in John 8 is coming to this woman who had committed some type of sinful act and he's drawing in the sand facing the Pharisees of the day. Stay tuned, I hope you really enjoy this in-depth with Dr. Richard Carrier and Dr. Dennis R. McDonald and be sure to subscribe to Dr. Kip Davis His channel is in the description, as well as in the comments section. Ladies and gentlemen, we have switched the arrangement up today because we're going to let you see scholars diving into the information about the the adulterous woman on this particular topic. So Dennis, please take us off.
1: Uh, Derek, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. I'm so looking forward to this. It allows you to be uh, flies on a wall to see how scholars work both individually and um, and, uh, together uh, and agree and disagree with respect to actual texts. So we're going to do uh, one clip on the famous story of the so-called adulterous woman, which I prefer to call the sinful woman. And this will be because Actually, in the history of the reception of the text, she's not an adulteress. She's a prostitute. So I'll talk about a, the um, a pericope, that is the unit of text in the gospel, the pericope peccatori, instead of the uh, adultery, because um, peccatori simply means a sinful woman. So sometimes I'll actually call it the PP just to save some time. I want to introduce some critical texts, um, uh, modern texts, scholarly books that are important for understanding the synoptic question. The most important of these is Alain's um, Greek uh, gospel parallel, the synopsis of the four gospels, and it will remain the standard. What I'm doing is not a replacement, most obviously because I present the parallels in English, just to make these arguments uh, more available in the modern world. Um, It also includes the very important issues of textual variance, and has lavish footnotes and uh, uh, appendices that are indispensable for any scholar who wishes to work on the synoptic problem. But it has shortcomings, and in fact, all of these uh, synopses written before the one that I'm working on share some of these problems. Let me tell you what the problems are. First of all, it's difficult to put the Gospel of John coherently in a synopsis because the Gospel of John itself went through several editions and these editions are differently related to the synoptics. So we have to have a different solution for the Gospel of John. Secondly, um, as in the Eusebian canons and in the New Testament itself, the columns are arranged not chronologically but canonically. So instead of going chronologically from Mark to Matthew to Luke, it's Matthew, Mark, then Luke, which means you can't use the synopsis very easily to monitor the growth of the synoptic tradition as most scholars would want to do but your
0: work does go mark matthew luke which and, is unique
1: and it includes q as the at the beginning so you can see how scholars uh, myself included uh, try to reconstruct the lost gospel and see its influence on subsequent gospels but anyway the the, the third shortcoming of the synopsis is all of the intertexts that are brought into bear on the Synoptic Gospels are Jewish or Christian. Uh, some of them will be patristic, some of them will be Christ- uh, Jewish apocrypha, but it's as if these texts never came out of the Greco Roman world. So that there's a silence about all parallels. Um, there is absolutely no reference to any literature outside of the the, um, Christian or Jewish tradition that is brought to bear on the synoptics. And this is a major problem. Mm. Another is that the Q document is entirely missing. Now, there's huge uh, controversies (laughs) about the Q document, and Dr. Carrier is one of the skeptics about it, and surely we'll talk about it. But it's actually less mysterious than one might think. But the recovery of the document is very difficult. And it has to do with uh, comparing texts in Greek and uh, having criteria to determine which of the readings is earlier and later. And that's something we can't do on YouTube. But we can take an example that is very famous, the so-called pericope adultery which, as I said, I will call the Pericope Peccatori. And it appears in uh, late texts of the Gospel of John, no later than the end, no earlier than the end of the third century. And scholars have wondered where it came from. And what we're going to do is an excavation. We're going to start with the most recent Uh, attestation of the text including the one in the Gospel of John and we're going to bore down in the tradition to see how early in the tradition we can uh, monitor the this this famous story we will actually then be introduced to the story itself as we go along but uh, you're welcome to look up John uh, chapter 7 Uh, and the beginning of chapter 8 and follow along in your Bibles just so you know that um, we're not uh, giving you um, uh, spooning spooning you um, uh, falsehoods, I can tell you that Dr. Carrier and and I are going to disagree at certain points, and that's all a part of the importance of scholarly discourse. Um, We aren't in a position to be dogmatic about very much. And so this kind of discourse is is important, and I'm sure that you're going to make your own judgments as we go along. I'm going to turn to um, Richard and Derek to see if they have any other introductory comments to make, and then we're going to plunge into reading an appendix uh, to my synopsis. Oh, let me say that um, my synopsis is different in many regards. Uh, That is, it uh, gives a separate Synopsis for the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John came out probably in three editions, and I think I've unbraided those uh, <clears throat> traditions, those compositional layers, and so one can compare the growth of the fourth Gospel on its own. The arrangement is no longer canonical but chronological, that is, goes from Q to Mark, Matthew and Luke, and every scholar um, can use it by blocking out the Q column and just doing Mark, Matthew, and Luke. So it's intended to be useful for anyone with um, a Mark and priority understanding of the synoptics. It also has extensive introductions and my own translations of classical Greek poetry, especially the Homeric epics, but also Athenian poetry. And it also has extensive footnotes on Byzantine rewritings of these stories that use Homer and the tragedians as a way of interpreting uh, the biblical text. This is almost unheard of in biblical scholarship, and um, I think it's very important. It also is different from others because it does include the Q document. I would like to think that, apart from textual criticism and examining the Greek text, this is going to be what scholars call the mecum in the field. That is, if you want to know how the Gospels function in their literary and historical context and how they're related to each other, this is the go-to. And that's my goal, and we'll have to see if other people think it has that virtue. But anyway, Richard and uh, Derek.
2: Yeah, it'll definitely have that use. I mean, regardless of, even if someone is pro-Q or not, uh, this synopsis is super helpful for examining. They can use it for their own material to try and come up with their own hypotheses for the construction of the text. But also it allows you to actually analyze the the case for the hypothesis of a cue. So it's actually, that's the kind of thing that we want as historians is a real clear breakdown, pieces by piece, so you can actually go in and look at how does the logical structure of this argument work? Uh, so, so this is going to be extremely invaluable, I think.
0: And I just want everyone to know, you know, we've talked, Dennis and I and Richard. Dennis is open and honest in saying he's probably wrong about some of the things, right? Uh, every scholar is. Like, let's be honest, we don't have everything right, but that's why we are trying to test and constantly test, and we're not dogmatists like you hear fundamentalists who are going to say we know. And and I want right. to say in this whole topic, and I want to get right into it because time is limited. Um, there are Christians, some scholarly Christians, and they are, you could tell they know some things, that are saying, stop preaching from this passage in John because this is not original and this was not there. And they're literally telling their congregations, this was not there, so let's not trust that this was something early, and so you guys should stop preaching from it. So yeah. this will be interesting.
1: Fascinating. Actually, um, Augustine knows that early Christians did not like this story and they removed it from their copies of the New Testament because they thought this Jesus forgiving a sinful woman meant their wives could play around, uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so that, that, that kind of stuff. So I'm looking, gentlemen, at page 282.
2: 282 or 281?
1: No, 282 now. Okay. Okay excavating the Pericope Peccatori from John 7:53 to 8:11 back to Logoi, which is my word for the Q document, which is probably its original title. The most famous version of this controversy between Jesus and Jewish authorities appears in manuscripts of the Gospel of John, but in none earlier than the late 3rd century, around a century and a half after the final redaction of that Gospel. Here is my translation of the core story as it appears in standard Greek, uh, a standard Greek edition. Uh, Derek, can
0: you read the scribes? Sure. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and and standing her in the center. They spoke to him saying, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses commanded us in the law to stone such women. So what do you say? They were saying this to test him in order to have an accusation against him.
1: According to Deuteronomy twenty two, twenty one, 21, if a man discovers that his wife is not a virgin, he may bring charges against her father. And if they are sustained, the judges will bring the girl out of the door of her father's house, and the men of the city will stone her with stones, and she will die. Derek, pick it up.
0: But Jesus stooped down and was writing in the ground with his finger. And as they continued interrogating him, he straightened up and said to them, Let the one among you without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And he stooped down again and was writing on the ground. But when they heard his reply, one by one, beginning with the elders, they left and only he and the woman who had been in the middle remained. And Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one is condemning you, are they? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either, go, and from now on, sin no longer.
1: Three aspects of this text offended ancient readers. (laughs) Jesus intentionally disobeys a Mosaic commandment. Second, the text does not indicate what Jesus' finger twice wrote in the ground. And third, Jesus forgives a woman even though she was guilty and unrepentant. William Peterson, in an important study, cites Augustine of Hippo as a witness to this last objection.
2: Sir Richard? Certain persons of scant faith, or better, I believe, enemies of the true faith, fearing that their wives be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts of the Gospel of John, the Lord's act of kindness towards the adulteress, as if the Lord had given permission to sin. This testimony, together with the remark of Ambrose about the unease caused by the passage and the omission in many sources of the words, Ud ego se cata I do not condemn you either, suggest a motive for the suppression of the story, which Augustine unambiguously says occurred. As we shall
1: see, such allerg- allergies to this passage were not confined to readers of the Gospel of John. They that, appear in- that's,
2: that's another, we found another typo.
1: Oh, tell, here you go. <laughs> uh, such allergies to this illusions. passage. Oh, uh, that should be illusion. No, no, it's allergies. Really, it, allergies? Uh, yeah, it's allergies to this passage. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they appear in virtually every stage of the transmission of the tale, including traces in all three synoptics. And that is the revolutionary part of this argument. Recently, Jennifer Knust and Tommy Wasserman published a magisterial study on the textual transmission of this agraphon, or extra-canonical login, Mm -hmm. but avoided speculating about its genesis. They did, however, demonstrate that originally it had nothing whatever to do with the Gospel of John, and that the earliest witnesses associated with other Gospels. Now, here's Didymus the Blind. Our excavation begins with Augustine's old, older Greek-speaking contemporary, Didymus the Blind of Alexandria, who died at the end of the fourth century, who wrote this. So again, Derek. Can,
0: okay. We report that in some Gospels, a story says that a woman was condemned by the Jews for a sin and was taken to be stoned at the place where this customary, customarily happened. It says that when the Savior saw her and observed that they were ready to stone her, he said to those who were about to throw stones at her, whoever has not sinned, let him lift a stone and throw it. If someone is certain that he has not sinned, let him take a stone and strike her. And no one dared to do so. When they knew in themselves and recognized that they were guilty in some respects, they did not dare to strike her.
1: One of my critics, aware of this important passage, opines in certain Gospels In certain Gospels could refer to the Gospel of John. Any other Gospel remains speculative. But Knuste and Wasserman rightly show that the phrase in certain Gospels acknowledges that the story he was about to tell stands outside the fourfold tradition. It's available only in certain other Gospel books, according to them, but it can be regarded as authoritative nonetheless. In any case, the missing Uh, Missing from Didymus's praesi is any hint of Jesus' disobedience to Biblical law. The villains are the Jews, not Moses himself. He also does not write in the dirt. So where else might the scribe responsible for the insertion into John 8 have found it? We must dig deeper. The Didascalia Apostolorum. About a century before Didymus, an anonymous author composed instructions to church fathers called the Didache. And here I'm going to have to summarize um, and ask um, Richard to um, finish that paragraph and then I'll give some extemporaneous comments. Okay, where am I at? Uh, About a century before Didymus. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, about a century before Didymus, an anonymous author composed instructions to church leaders called the Didiscalia Apostolorum, which likewise refers to PP, but without the three troublesome details. According to this author, local bishops should receive those who repent as Jesus did with her who had sinned, whom the elders placed before him, leaving the judgment in his hands and departed. But he, the searcher of hearts, asked her and said to her, Have the elders condemned you, my daughter? She says to him, No, Lord and he said to her, go, I do not condemn you either. Apparently, Jesus, the searcher of hearts, knew that in her heart she had repented. She does not do so openly, and thus thus could serve as a model for penitents whom the author advises the bishops to forgive. Arno also, do you want me to keep going? No, no. Um,
1: The reason this is important is that um, this document was written in Syria at the beginning of the third century and that is that it's about 50 years before the first time we find the peccatory uh, story in Latin texts and even longer before it enters into Greek texts of the Gospel of John. So we know that the story was pre-existent and that uh, we've already seen that Didymus the Blind saw it in several non-canonical Gospels. Now one of those probably was the Gospel of the Egyptians because Didymus knows the Gospel of the Egyptians, and Eusebius says this story appeared in that text, although it doesn't survive. But it appeared in more than the Gospel according to the Egyptians, and of course it did not appear in Didymus's copy of the Gospel of John. The next example is really quite amazing, and I'm gonna have to spend some time on it. Um, The Proto-Gospel of James. It's also called the Proto-Evangelium. No witnesses to PP survive between the Didascalia and the mid-second century, when one finds a fascinating potential witness to it in the Prot. Evangelium Iacobi. According to this apocryphon, Jesus discovered Mary. Joseph discovered, Joseph
2: discovered Mary.
1: Jo, sorry, Joseph discovered Mary to be six months pregnant, and because he knew the baby was not his, wanted to keep a secret her sexual indiscretion. Quote Joseph feared greatly, pondered what he should do t- uh, about her, and said to himself, If I hide the sin, I will be found fighting the nomos, the-, the law of the Lord. The legislation that he feared violating appears in Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-three to 24. Derek?
0: If a young virgin is betrothed to a man, and if a man is found sleeping with her in the city, you will bring both of them to the gate of their city, and they will be stoned with stones and will die. The young woman because she did not cry out in the street, and the man because he demeaned his neighbor's wife.
1: Just one verse in Deuteronomy separates this legislation from the verse invoked in the uh, PP. Moses commanded us in the law to stone such women, referring to Deuteronomy 22:21. They will bring the girl out of her father's house, and the men of the city will stone her with stones, and she will die. The juxtaposition of the commandments in Deuteronomy 22, within a few verses of each other, separated only by one verse, um, is probably not coincidental. Despite Joseph's occulting of Mary's pregnancy, the scribes saw her baby bulge and ran to inform the priest, Hey look Joseph has greatly uh, gravely violated the law as you can confirm send assistance and you will find the virgin to be pregnant now we have some parallels and i'm going to ask uh, Derek to read the column in the right hand column and i'll read from the left hand column the elder this is the my um, translation, my reconstruction of the story in the Lost Gospel, Q, which I'll defend later. The elders brought a woman who had been accused of many sins and standing her in the center, they said to him,
0: this is the proto uh, James, Uh, the assistants went off and found her just as he had said, Uh, brought her to the temple and she stood in the court the high priest said to her Mary
1: and uh, Richard can see the similarities in Greek yeah and um, they really are quite striking Mary protested the priest's accusation she wept bitterly and said as the Lord lives I am pure before him and have not known a man The sinful woman, on the other hand, neither contested the charge against her nor repented. The high priest then tested Mary and Joseph by means of the water of conviction, which proved negative. So, Derek, you're going to do this again. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either.
0: Udo ego se katakrino go. And the high priest said, if the Lord God did not reveal your sin, I do not condemn you either. And he released them.
1: And the phrase is almost identical. U the ego crinoimas. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so the scholar Peterson I mentioned before um, is going to be read by Richard.
2: Okay. We are driven to conclude that some sort of dependence exists between the proto and the Pericope Adulteri. Furthermore, we may stipulate that the form of the Pericope Adulteri from which the Protovangelium borrowed these words must have been similar to the form of the episode now has to the form the episode now has in the Gospel of John, in that the transgression was, one, explicitly sexual in nature; two, the accused was presented by a mob to the authority figure for judgment; and three, the story contained the words, "Neither do I judge you." The words, "Neither do I judge you." are then textual evidence that three consecutive elements of the Pericope adultery, as it is now known to us from the Gospel of John, were known in the second half of the second century, the date assigned to the Evangelian Jacobi.
1: And that date is not very far um, later than the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to skip over the next section except to say that the story of the woman who shows great repentance in the Gospel of Luke is Luke's transformation of the story. The woman in the uh, Pericope Adultery never repents. The woman in Luke 7 is, is excessive in her repentance and therefore is forgiven. And Luke has placed that story right after the statement Jesus is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And um, in the Q document, in my view, this story, the Pericope Adulterae, uh, Peccatori, um, ex- explains that. But next, the next um, um, item is um, sketchy, but is the most important witness to an early date for this story ever. The next earliest reference that we have to um, the uh, Pericope Peccatori is a fragment. Um, that is preserved by Eusebius of Caesarea about uh, from, of Papius, and here's what we find: Papius wrote his five-volume work before the composition of Luke and John, that is around 100 in CE, give or take uh, 100, 110 CE, give or take uh, <laughs> 10 years. According to Eusebius, it concluded a tale about a woman who had been be accused before the Lord of many sins a tale that the Gospel of the Hebrews contains. So Eusebius does not know it in his copy of the Gospel of John. He knows it in the Gospel of the Hebrews. He sees it in Papias and Didymus the blind saw it in multiple Gospels. So it's a widespread, um, documented tale um, in different languages uh, at a relatively early date, but far beho- be earlier than the inclusion in the Gospel of John. Eusebius Lee clearly did not know the story from the Gospel of John. Tragically, nothing more survived from the Gospel of the Hebrews relevant to our excavation. In any case, Papias could not have inherited the PP from that apocryphon, which was written later. As we shall see, he probably saw it in his lost gospel according to Matthew, that no longer survives, that is, the Q document or the Logo of Jesus. Now, if the Matthaean evangelist saw it in the lost gospel, he omitted it except for a telltale scrap. After the charge that Jesus was a friend of sinners, precisely where Luke had located the story of the repentant woman, one reads that Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of the miracles had been done because they did not repent. Instead of a story of Jesus forgiving an unrepentant woman, in Matthew one finds him rebuking entire unrepentant cities. Matthew also expertly sidestepped Jesus' snubbing a biblical commandment and uh, scribbling in the dirt. So before Luke, we also have evidence of this story uh, known in Papias, although uh, the story has not survived. And I think it's likely that it didn't survive because Jesus disobeys the Mosaic commandment. He scribbles something in the dirt and was, um, even in ancient texts, people didn't know what that meant and were somewhat uh, offended by it. And third, Jesus is forgiving a woman who doesn't repent. And she, it apparently uh, was, in fact, a prostitute.
0: And are you suggesting, potentially, that Matthean gospel is, because it's so Torah-minded, so to speak, he's actually saying, oh, I just rebuke the whole city. Like, let's get rid of this him disobeying Torah idea. If yes, it is there. yes, yes, yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, and especially the issue of repentance. This woman doesn't repent, and Jesus forgives her. Well, what does that mean? You know, there's, there's uh, okay. Then the Gospel of Mark, and here things become really kind of dicey, but fun. Mark is the earliest surviving book about the life and teachings of Jesus, and its author, too, may have known PP, but radically transformed it uh, into a defense of faithful monogamy. Note the impressive parallels between the controversies over the sinful woman in the lost gospel and over divorce in Mark. And here I'm going to ask Richard to read the uh, Markan uh, equivalence because of the Greek. I want you to read the Greek, Richard. Okay. The elders brought in a woman, Ginaika, who had been accused of many sins, and standing her in the center, they said to him.
2: And so I'm doing the yes, parallel right, for this. Right. Pharisees came and asked him, "Eperoton auton? if it was permitted for a man to divorce his wife, gnaikah.
1: Okay, so there we have the same word, gnaikah, and we're going to find this idea of being, of attempt of testing Jesus, or asking Jesus uh, with similar wording in, in the law of Jesus. Teacher, Moses commanded us, a eneteletah, in the law to stone such women, so what do you say? But they
2: were saying this to test him, pe To test him, pe auton. And in response he said to them, What did Moses command you? Enatelato mos... Moses. They said, Moses allowed him to write grapsai, a scroll of dissolution and to divorce.
1: But Jesus, the Jesus, stooped down and was writing, kad egrepsen in the ground with his finger, and as they continued to interrogate him, erotasen he straightened up and said
2: to them, Apenaftes. auftis? But Jesus, hote Jesus, said to them, apen autois.
1: Whoever has not sinned, let him lift a stone and throw it, and he stooped down again and was riding agrapsen
2: in the ground, and no one dared to do it. For your hard hearts he wrote agrapsen, you this commandment, Entolain. Now, uh,
1: unfortunately, um, at this point, you can't see the parallel texts. But the wording and the sequencing here is quite remarkable. And it's difficult to explain those parallels um, without some literary connection. Now, of course, I'm assuming the, the rightness of my reconstruction of Q, but it's not based on the Markin uh, account. It's, make, it's based on um, the, the other textual evidence. But I think uh, if you could see it in Greek, you would um, recognize that these are very similar tales. Now, notice the following possibility, uh, similarities also, in addition to these lexical ones. Uh, and I'm going to um, invite my friends to help me do the bulleted items. So Derek, if you would read the first one, and then um, Richard the second one, I'll read the third one, and so on. So uh, Derek, in both stories.:
0: In both stories, Jewish authorities, elders or Pharisees, test Jesus.:
1: About sexual: uh, Oh,
0: about
2: sexual issue issues, promiscuity or divorce. In both, at the core of the dispute is what Moses had commanded and its redaction I'm sorry, what Moses has commanded, the name of Moses is the subject of the verb, "I command." appears in the New Testament only here in Mark 10, verse 3, and its redaction in Matthew 19, verse 7, both of which apparently inherited the expression from Logoi 5, verse 19.
1: In other words, what Moses commanded appears only in this story in the New Testament, and it appears in both of these stories about sex. In both, the text to be interpreted comes from Deuteronomy, either chapter 22 or 24. Derek?
0: Both portray Jesus' opponents as sinners.
2: And Richard? Jesus and Moses both wrote commandments.
1: Confirmation of Mark's transformation of our tale appears just a few verses later in 17 to 21, where Jesus applauds an inquirer for obeying the Ten Commandments, including the commandment not to commit adultery. Whereas Logo's Jesus disobeys a Mosaic commandment to protect a woman, Mark's Jesus loves a wealthy man who obeyed the Ten Commandments from his youth and implies that such compliance is requisite to inherit eternal life. Mark's transformation thus deftly makes Jesus Torah observant. Obedient. I'm sorry, uh, obedient or or observant, Mm -hmm. yeah. Removes his writing in the dirt. And makes his refusal to stone the promiscuous woman as required in Deuteronomy twenty two twenty one into pro- a prohibition of divorce as permitted in Deuteronomy um, twenty four. I have a t- typo. <coughs> so finally, the logoi of Jesus. Thus far, the arguments for attributing PP to logoi or Q have been external and diachronic, that is, our excavation, digging down. Our excavation has discovered that the following authors were familiar with the story in texts independent of the Johannine witnesses to it. Didymus the Blind saw it in more than one extra-canonical gospel. The author of the Didascalia Apostolorum expected his readers to be familiar with it, the authors of the Protevangelium of James and the Gospel of Luke apparently transformed it. Papias' exposition retold it, Matthew snubbed it, and Mark replaced it with a prohibition of divorce. Furthermore, the Q plus Papias hypothesis holds that the lost gospel was known to the authors of Mark, Matthew, and the exposition, that is Papius and Luke. Therefore, if one were to propose the origin of PP, none would be more attractive than the Logoi of Jesus, in my view. The stoning that builders of the critical edition of Q discarded, this one has become a gem in Q+. Even stronger than these external and text-critical arguments are arguments internal and synchronic, that is, inside the text itself. Logoi's rewriting Deuteronomy accounts for Jesus' disobedience to a Mosaic commandment, his writing in the dirt rather than stone, and his forgiveness of an unrepentant uh, harmatolos, or that is, a sinner. And here I'm going to extemporize in order to have a discussion about these texts. Deuteronomy, uh, the rewriting of Deuteronomy in the Logoi of Jesus presents Jesus as being concerned the Jewish law not oppress sinners and tax collectors and the poor, because these groups are not able to obey the commandments as much as others. So this idea that Jesus all forgives a woman who's unrepentant fits into Jesus being a chum of tax collectors and sinners. In fact, in my Q document, I preserve the statement in Matthew, Prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees. That is the Torah enforcers. The second thing about the writing with a finger in the dirt probably is an indication is a alternative to Moses writing the law with his finger. The same word in Greek, in stone, whereas the Pharisees probably uh, are depicted here as writing the law. Uh, Moses writing the law in stone and every commandment needed to be obeyed. Jesus is writing the same commandment but in the dirt to show its temporality, its flexibility, it's if, uh, that it's ephemeral. Uh, finally, um, Jesus uh, forgiving the unrepentant woman Satan uh, yeah I think I think that's enough so that... The pericope Adulterae seems to have been known by the synoptic evangelists in my view. It was too radical for them to retain without um, adjustments, but it fits quite nicely in the reconstruction of Q if Jesus is depicted as the uh, is preaching an alternative Torah. Now, um, so my reconstruction of Q, and by the way, the synopsis has its own reconstruction of it, both in English and in Greek. Um, you'll see, one could see that it fits really quite beautifully in the context of the lost gospel. Now, I know Professor um, Carey or, or or Dr. Carrier does not, hold to the Q hypothesis. So I, my guess is he's going to be able to follow me down the trail, but uh, deviate in the trail at some point, and maybe at more than one point. And I'm sure, because Derek is making himself an expert in the field, he's going to have his own questions. So I'm going to stop and, um, and uh, 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 let you ask questions.
2: Yeah, so this is a good example of proving, for exen- for instance, that some version of the Pericope adulteri Uh, predates Luke I think is the key thing Uh, so the the additional step is does it predate Mark Uh, so the alternative analysis of this would be that Mark has his passage on divorce someone wanted to expand on that do it a little bit differently and Luke knows that other gospel uh, whatever that is theoretically Um, what would you say against that alternative theory like what renders that theory implausible
1: that Luke knows a text or Mark knows a text differently? Well, that
2: Mark doesn't. Let's assume Mark, there's no pericope adultery when Mark writes. He writes his section on divorce, and then someone expands that into this kind of narrative. Uh, And then Luke is aware of that expanded narrative. So instead of, it's like a cue after Mark rather than a cue before Mark.
1: Yeah. Well, it um requires a uh, a hypothetical source, but of course Q is a hypothetical source sure. too. Yeah. So then we're we're
2: um we're at 50-50 between two now. <laughs> and
1: and uh, Luke also knows that many people have written uh these accounts and it's not impossible that you'd have that um the 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 biggest issue for me would be that um if that's the case Somebody else came in and really radically rewrote the Marken prohibition of divorce into something that really is quite permissive.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and I, radical. It deliberately, so. And right. And Someone's deliberately, deliberately so. turning this into a more liberal interpretation.
1: Exactly. And it's not um, implausible. That, so it's possible. But then I would say that it fits. This my interpretation of it fits with other things I would attribute to the lost gospel. Um, Yeah.
0: So to ask in the vein, both of you guys are, wrap your head around this pretty well. The way I understood that is, and I get where you're coming from, like a like a post-cue. Mark doesn't know it, but this is a good question based on when we were reading in Matthew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you suggested Matthew snubbed it, no wonder he would snub something like this based on him being such a pro-Jewish yeah, Christian. Yeah, and that,
2: for people who might not have followed this, uh, it's key to note that Luke almost certainly must follow Papias. This is like one crucial component of this, and this is a thing a lot of scholars don't know or don't think about. Because you, someone might come along and say, well, what if it's Mark, Luke expands it, someone else riffs on Luke, and then that's the version that Papias knows. But if you're going to do that, you have to conclude that Luke predates Papias. Well, why doesn't Papias know Luke in that case? So, so the, that's, that's an important example of how you can do what he's calling diachronic analysis, where you can show that, that whatever there's some version of this that definitely is not in our Gospels now, that predates Papias, which means it must predate Luke. So it has to fall between Mark and Luke. Right. Possibly between Matthew and Luke as well. Or but, before um, Mark,
0: if you take his position.
2: Right, that's the alternative, right? right. So, so the alternative is that. And then, of course, what Dennis will do is he'll, he'll, he will builds out many more examples of these. And then that becomes an argument for a coherent text. I think that's, that's the case that he's making. I, I, think, I find that entirely plausible. I just don't think that final step of confirming that these all came from the same pre-Markan Q is the evidence is strong enough to be confident of it because all these authors are doing riffs off of Deuteronomy and doing these kinds of things and we have many examples of trying to liberalize passages as a trend in the gospels especially the further on you get in the gospels outside the canon Uh, so so i'm not convinced by it but i i like the theory it's it's plausible Um,
1: and of course what we would have to do is replicate such uh, a detailed analysis For all of the places where you have diachronic traditions in the, which is what this
2: does, right? This This is what this does, but we can't (laughs) do it on uh, YouTube, right?
0: Not on video, but (laughs) this this is really cool. I I really like this because um, both positions in my head actually work themselves out, like you're suggesting. The creativity of each uh, author—they're all seeing. Well, I mean, to some degree, even Mark sees Jesus as this. Newer, better, Moses, Elijah, oh, yeah. all of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's not quite as like...
2: Even focused. Matthew is doing that as well. But the, yeah, all, all the gospel authors, that's kind of the Christian thing, right? Is to depict Jesus as somehow a superior improver on Moses or superior interpreter of Moses is the is threat. And trend.
0: my thing is, if, if Mark knows Q and he's got this pericope, the center... That's another point, yeah. Why uh, is he going to marriage? This, this
2: analysis of, requires you to assume Mark knew and used Q. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and that I find more plausible than the standard traditional Q theory where, the, oh, Mark doesn't know Q. Uh, because I find that a circular argument. Uh, and so this is a much more plausible construction attempt.
0: One more question in this vein for you, Dennis, and then maybe you might agree with what I'm assessing here. In Mark, when we read that, Mark, if I'm not mistaken, he's not like uh it's talking about marriage in his passage why would mark look at this in Q, see this pericope adulteri or this sitting woman and then write it about marriage instead of uh in particular what we see come later oh in the that's a
1: great question and i have a better answer <laughs> okay um we already know in our excavation that the text was embarrassing to people in uh, Augustine's world and uh, with Ambrose because Mm -hmm. it can be interpreted (coughs) that Jesus is um, okay with people being promiscuous and their promiscuity can be forgiven. Now, that's not what's going on in q he, the issue is Jesus' compassion and reinterpretation of Jewish law and making it more flexible. After all, Jesus is writing the same commandment in the dirt, yeah, apparently. Yeah. He just wants to make it flexible so that people are not harmed by the law. So Mark reads that and he has the same problem that people had in the fourth century reading the text. Is Jesus pro- uh, allowing promiscuity? can people be forgiven for being prostitutes um, without their repentance and we see that's that's obviously the case in luke where luke makes it into a story of a of an extraordinarily repentant woman so um, mark wants to have reset the, the stage and have jesus affirm uh, marriage and A few verses later, he has uh, this man who obeys all the commandments, and Jesus loves him, and you know, you have to do this to inherit eternal life. So, he's embarrassed, like the rest of the tradition, that Jesus is allowing
2: promiscuity.
0: And before we go, what would your alternative to this... uh... B, you get where I'm going in my head.
2: No, that's what I was saying, like, like this is an example of proving that there's at least a third source that Luke is using at, at the very least. So the question is, is that a source, is it the same source as all this other stuff comes from, like the whole constructed theory? Uh, or Is it a source that predates Mark? Is it a source that builds, built on Mark? Uh, and so for me, there's too many possibilities and we can't rule them out. Uh, we have an elegant, one elegant theory uh, mm-hmm. that fits and, and so I find it entirely plausible but I don't see enough evidence to confirm that that theory is of all the alternative theories is the one that is correct. So it's, but there is something interesting being done here regardless, which is that this does prove that Luke must be using a source uh, Hmm. that we don't have. So that, that's, that's a, that is a key takeaway from all of this. And I have to point out like, so this is just a really good example. And this whole, this whole book that you've created, this whole synopsis is what allows scholars or even, even if lay people, if you really want to get into the material, to actually do this stuff, to actually check all of these examples to see like, okay, what can we get out of the diachronic analysis of all of these texts? Where are all the, and, and also the Greek parallels, because even if you don't know Greek, you can look on the page and you can see the similarities, the etymological similarities mm-hmm. in between the, the letters. So um, so even a lay person can benefit from this, but, uh, but especially scholars. So it allows you to actually gain insights like this, the fact that we're looking now, there must be some source that Luke has modified. Uh, and also, uh, it allows you to test different hypotheses, right? So you don't have to agree with the hypothesis that's, that's being promoted here. This is just a hypothesis that you can test. But the, because the structure of the book, the, the synopsis and everything, all the material is here so that you can actually evaluate that hypothesis and test other hypotheses against the evidence. Exactly.
1: Available. And by the way, you'll notice that this is in an, append- in an appendix. It's not in the synopsis itself. So it, the argument is cumulative, and it requires one to compare Look the text yeah. earlier on, mm-hmm. and this is an answer to someone who is skeptical about the inclusion. But the other thing I like about it, and Richard, I thank you very much for, for uh, highlighting this. This uh, helps one understand how one can read the Gospels non- chronologically, that you can see how the tradition grows by doing an excavation of the most recent example, let's say, uh, the Gospel of John, then you, pair, you can drill down to the Gospel of Luke, you can go to Matthew, you can go to Mark, and then you can assess, is there anything further? Is it the, right. What about the historical Jesus? And what about a Q document? What about my,
2: you can triangulate with external sources that are relevant, like Papias, Augustine, uh, you know Ambrose and all that, and it tells else. you
1: how the text was read. The protob Evangelion of and James and how people. it was embarrassing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I find this fascinating
0: too, as a lay person you can at least get someone who's done this for a long time come to a conclusion seeing what he says and then poke holes and say, is there a blind spot or are there other possible... And then you can
2: test that. You, you, yeah, you you've, can the test material it. is here for you to test any theory that you come up That's with. That's so, what makes
0: it so unique. So if you're comfortable and you go, you know what, I, I'm going with his conclusion. And makes, it's,
2: it, I should, a lot of scholars will write a book and then they'll make their case and they leave out a ton of stuff, right? So that they just look how confidently I can reconstruct this narrative. But it's hard to test because they haven't put everything in. So, so this book has the advantage that it has everything relevant is here. There's nothing that's left out so that you have all the materials basically sitting on the table that you could use to test various hypotheses, which is this. That's what makes a resource like this so valuable and so useful. And it's the and kind of me, thing I've been looking forward to.
1: Well, and let me put a coda on that. The importance of this book is that not no, that is not that people know what I think. Mm-hmm. It's rather that the texts are out here so people can make their own judgments. Uh, This is not my victory. I'm hoping it's the victory of the texts themselves. Right, yeah. Yeah.
0: I I love that too. And the way that I traveled with you and him at the same time, it was really cool having Mm -hmm. you also come in and say, okay, look, uh, this." you're already looking for potential alternate
2: Yeah, ideas. and which one should always do. Uh, even if it's a theory you are advocating, the the one thing you should do is, how do I falsify my theory, right? So you're always like, well, what could be true, and how would I, what could, what otherwise could be true, and how would I know it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the that's the thing that scholars need to do most of all, right, is to like actually try to disprove their own theory as much as possible. Uh, and then, because it's by failing to do that, if you've done it sincerely, if you've really tried, not rigged the game, but if you've actually sincerely tried to refute it, done everything possible and you failed, that's how you know, that's how you gain confidence in a theory. So, uh, so and this is a tool that, that helps doing that.
0: So at the end of the day, if I could say to my Christian scholar friends who would like to have people know whether they should still be preaching this or not, um, you know, this isn't some 3rd, 4th century necessarily complete interpolation of something. Sure, it goes missing, we know why, uh, here's some evidence. But if you're a person who's a believer who wants to preach a sermon, I wouldn't steer clear from being able to do that. That is a really texts. good
2: point. I mean, quite frankly, if you're, if let's get into the mindset, if you're a devout Christian and you think these texts contain deep meaning that you want to extract from it, you have to have this tool because you don't know the Gospels until you know these things, like these parallels and stuff, the, 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 the relationship between them and even the underlying Greek, like you don't have to read Greek to see the underlying Greek matching up and stuff, that like this, even for a devout Christian who wants, thinks this is the Word of God, mm-hmm. this is a, a tool that you, even you could use uh, for that purpose and, and for really getting to understand the Gospels and their purpose and their meaning.
1: And it allows, it puts pressure on people who want to preach from a text, if they compare the text across the page in a synopsis, to think theologically for themselves, which of these versions makes most sense to you? And can you see that the text you might want to preach on is problematic already in the gospel tradition? Right. Because yeah. <laughs> these texts aren't saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, the advantage of an assessment like this with Q, whether you wherever you want to place you know missing pieces, is that you can see that they are struggling with the Jesus tradition and changing it in a way to make it more compatible to their own Torah observance commitments or attitudes towards sexuality and so on. So it really is, it's intended to be almost an endless, uh, to encourage endless thinking about how the text works.
0: Thank you. Special thanks to Dr. Kip Davis for editing this video. Absolutely amazing work. We have overlapping material that we talk about all the time, and he is an expert in Dead Sea Scrolls. We hope that you guys enjoyed the video. Be sure to check out the description. Help out any way you can.